You may be seated. Wonderful. Thank you for your enthusiastic worship of the Lord this morning. It's very refreshing to hear God's people just pouring out their praise to God. About a year ago, uh, I was uh, uh, counseling with uh, a woman who's visiting our services. Uh, I would say she's around, is in her 40s, and uh, very, very sharp gal, very smart, highly educated, uh, has one of the top nursing jobs in one of our best hospitals around here, and uh, she'd been raised uh, really with no religious influence in her life and was, was an agnostic. Uh, she wasn't like against God. Uh, she wasn't atheist, but she just didn't know and didn't really have any foundation for that at all. And uh, after uh, Susan and I talked to her for a little bit, uh, uh, I led her uh, right up to the book of Romans, and then I, I slipped out of the room for a moment, and, and Susan spent about 15 more minutes with her and led her to Christ in the next few minutes. And we started discipling her, Susan did, uh, personally, one-on-one, and got her into the Word of God, and she was reading her Bible. And... Uh, uh, she came to me as we asked her to. Said, "Now, if you have questions, you know, bring them to Susan in discipleship, or bring them to me, and we'll help you work through." Because she approached a God, she approached being born again, she approached Christianity with a complete blank slate, no preconceived baggage of religion, like most of us had. Most of us already had preconceived baggage when we approached. Uh, 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 religion or we approached coming to church, we approached discipleship, she had none. And it was interesting to watch her mental processes and how, how she came to conclusions. So one day she said, I've got a question. We said, great, sit down, let's talk it out. And we began to talk out her question. And this was the question she asked me. So Christianity condones polygamy, right? I said, well, wow, that's quite a question. I said, where in the world did you get such a crazy idea? In a joking way. I mean, it wasn't insulting her, but, you know, where did you get, you know, how did you come to that, that uh, conclusion? She said, well, I've been reading my Bible, just like you told me. Well, I sat back for a moment. Now I think a lot about that conversation. Obviously, here a year later, I'm still rehearsing it. Any person who had no preconceived notions, who comes to Christ for salvation... And you begin reading in the book of Genesis and start reading the Old Testament. You know what conclusion you're going to naturally draw? Christianity condones polygamy. And now I look back at that conversation and say, well, it's not a crazy conclusion at all. It's almost the logical conclusion for someone who has no spiritual foundation to read the Old Testament and come away with that assumption. So let's talk about polygamy in the Bible for a few minutes this morning. Polygamy in the ancient world was the accepted norm of a broken society. Now, as I said five weeks ago, you'll have to stay with me for five weeks because for those of you who weren't here for sermon number one to learn how it all got broken, I'll only have to give you glimpses this morning. I won't be able to articulate at any length. But once society fell, Genesis chapter number three, and the relationships got broken, Polygamy was the accepted norm of the broken world that sin had now invaded. Let me get you some vocabulary very quickly. Our common use of the word polygamy is applied to a man with multiple wives. I think most of you would understand that. Um, 
but the word technically means multiple spouses. It's not as precise a term. There are other, bigamy is another very similar term. But there's more precise terms. Polygamy is a man with multiple wives. Polyandry is one woman with multiple husbands. Today we have another thing that's become quite popular here on planet Earth, and that's those who are in open relationships. It's called polyamorous. It's it's multiple husbands, multiple wives, multiple friends, lots of benefits in any kind of combination in which you could, could imagine. Polyamory or polyamorous. What I want to say to you this morning is that none of these arrangements matches God's model for marriage in the beginning, as I articulated it two weeks ago. After the fall of of Adam and Eve, uh, God said, something's going to happen now, something's going to change on planet Earth. All of the relationships are now broken, not just the relationship between God and man, but your relationship to planet Earth, the animal kingdom, human relationships, the marriage relationship, Sin has forever broken this, and it's now going to have to have a repair uh, be done because now you're not going to follow the model that I've set up. And you have to decide in Genesis 3 what, G, what God is saying to Adam and Eve and to the serpent. Is it prescriptive or is it predictive? It's a theological question you'll have to ask yourself. And as I told you two weeks ago, there's no way to come away with any conclusion other than it's predictive. In other words, God's not saying, you must do this. God's saying, this is what's going to happen now that you've broken uh, uh, my law or that you've broken uh, yourselves by sinning against me. Man shall rule over his wife. The stronger is going to rule over the weaker, physically going to subjugate her. Now, it was Genesis 3. You turn one page in your Bible, and you're at Genesis chapter number 4, And in Genesis chapter number 4, because of the brokenness of relationships now, the first polygamous enters onto the stage of the Bible. Genesis 4 verse 19, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other, Zillah. And what follows from Genesis 4, reading forward into 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, what follows in history is a sweeping breakdown of human relationships globally, worldwide. It just just turns into disaster. And you're leading up to Noah's flood is what you're leading up to in chapter 6. Then, then you, God starts coming on the scene saying, oh my goodness, it repents me. I made man. Everything is corrupt. Everything's turned upside down. There's violence. They're just taking wives and they're just murdering each other. It's just turned into a disaster. Now, even if you read beyond the flood and you read about people that you famously know in Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, Solomon, the famous people of the Old Testament, even in the homes of those God used greatly, there are broken models in their homes as well. For sake of time, let me just make my point by mentioning a few of these. Abraham had two wives. Sarah, uh, that wife is actually his half-sister, but that's a whole other message for another time. It's another topic. Sarah is his half-sister. And then his second wife, he married an Egyptian slave that they had taken once they went down to Egypt, and, and she became his wife as well. Her name is Hagar. Jacob famously had 
four wives. Rachel and Leah, the famous two in the book of Genesis that you read about him working decades to uh, obtain the right to, to, for their hand in marriage. Rachel and Leah. But then he also married their two handmaids, Zilpha and Bilhah. And from these four women, Jacob fathered what we know as the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 boys that came out of those four unions with those four women, become the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Moses had two wives, one black and one light brown. Now that might have caused quite a stir in 1400 B.C. It would in America in some places, you know what I'm saying? But in 1400 B.C., Moses was quite a trendsetter, wasn't he? I mean, uh, and listen, we could go through the whole Old Testament and look at this situation. I think you're going to begin to get the picture. David had at a minimum seven wives. Six of those wives are listed in one passage, which is in your notes this morning. I won't take the time to read it. But in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, lists six wives of David in that one running passage. And that passage omits the most famous wife of David, the one whose name you actually know, Bathsheba, <laughs> the wife he got in an adulterous relationship by murdering her husband. People God used greatly had very broken models of relationships. Do you hear what I'm saying? So David had at least seven. I don't even want to talk about his son, Solomon. The Bible had, said he had 300 wives, 700 concubines. Solomon the Great. A thousand wives. Sexual relations with a different woman. Every day of the week, you wouldn't see the same woman for three or four years. You talk about a messed up harem type. It was a messed up deal. And the Bible says, and Solomon says, as he's writing in the Old Testament, that all of this desire for sexuality and, and wives and all of this Hugh Hefner lifestyle that the world promotes. He said, vanity of vanities, it's left my heart empty and cold. There's nothing there at the end of the day. It's just nothing. It's just nothingness. Vanity of vanities, I've wasted and they took my heart away from God. I was so busy pursuing pleasure that I got sucked into their idolatry at times, and my heart turned away from God, it really messed me up. That's what Solomon's saying. I wish I had the years back. So here's the question, and it's a little bit of a philosophical sermon for you this morning. Here's the big question. Why didn't God give us significant portions of Scripture denouncing polygamy? If God's against polygamy, Somebody show me the book in the Bible, you know, First Polygamy chapter 3, where we can turn over there and it gives us whole running discourses on why God is against this broken models of, of relationships. Why aren't there significant portions of scripture denouncing polygamy? It's a philosophical question. I just want you to think about it. And I want you to come to some conclusions in your own heart and mind. Let me ask it a different way. Should we infer that God approves of polygamy because we can't find passages denouncing polygamy? Maybe this is the better question. Are we to infer then, as my disciple did, so Christianity condones polygamy, right? I'm going to read the Old Testament. Everybody's got a wife. God never said anything about it. Just everybody's going merrily along down the road, and it just, there it is. 
So are we to assume that God says, okay, that's fine, it meets with my approval, just because there aren't large passages denouncing it? I'll let you think about that. I think I would say, no, God doesn't approve of it, but let you think about that. What was God's design from the beginning? As I told you two weeks ago, the, the arguments really end up in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, eventually all of them. What was God's design from the beginning? If you firmly can grasp, I will make Aetzer for Adam. I will make a Aetzer, helper. It doesn't mean domestic, as I illustrated last week. It means something very different. It's more like a woman warrior. What was God's design from the beginning? Well, his design from the beginning was two genders, one man, one woman, in a committed lifetime relationship, free from their parents' intervention and authority. Very important. Free. And by the way, if you're saying, man, I I need to rescue my kids, if they're adults, give them some space. Give them some space. If they come to you for help, that's a different matter. If you're interjecting your help, you've crossed the line as the parents now. You've got to to let them ask. Because free from parental authority, the Bible is very clear on this, Equal in value, equal in authority, equal in mission, equal in relationship with God. But as we saw in Genesis chapter number 3, sin destroyed that original model. And what sin did is it gave us unimaginable suffering for thousands of years. Any student of the Old Testament, by reading about these polygamous families, of which is all the patriarchs, But by reading about these families, what you will determine, if you're really a student of the Old Testament, is that these marriages of polygamy resulted in children who were hostile one to another. Multiple wives, kids by the multiple wives, and what it looked like was World War III in the home. That's what you read about in the Old Testament. Those marriages resulted in children that were hostile towards each other in the home. Those marriages resulted in creating this atmosphere of resentment between the wives within those polygamy marriages. The wives begin to be in competition with one another. They begin to resent one another. They begin to hate one another. Can you imagine, just just don't answer out loud, but you and your wife at times or you and your husband at times have a little conflict, a little discussion. Can you imagine being in a home where that's multiplied by three or four? Sometimes it's a little difficult parenting, the the two kids you've got. Can you imagine your two and the other wives three and the other wives four and the other wives six? And then the barren wife who hasn't been able to produce children in a society where your value is judged by this. Can you imagine the tension in the home? Can you imagine uh, how horrible that, that all Felt. What it did is it created resentment and jealousy. What it did was it granted blatant favoritism to one child. And if you read in the book of Genesis especially, what you begin to read about is how in this marriages of polygamy with all these children, how the father loved one and gave favoritism to one and special treatment to one. And what did that create in the home? A whole nother level of drama where brothers wanted to murder a brother, where, 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 where people just resented each other and, and, and were at odds with each other. The bottom line is what polygamy created was a lot of tears. 
and a lot of tragedies and a lot of really, really broken people. I struggle to open the Old Testament and show you a beautiful marriage model that you could follow. I struggle to open the Old Testament and say, look, here's a wonderful family. Follow their pattern. I struggle because it's so, so broken. Now, conversely, let's think about God's model for a moment. While that model creates all of this stress and all of this strife when we do whatever we want to do as the result of sin, conversely, God's model, it appears, works for our mental health. One man, one woman, committed relationship. for It tends to work for our security. God's model works for our spiritual health. God's model works for our emotional health. Whereas our even modern attempts to alter sexual orientations, to reconfigure marriage and its very meaning, our modern attempts do nothing more than result in us getting hurt. I think a lot of times we see some maybe rules or or boundaries God put in the Bible and we're like, man, he doesn't want us to have any fun at all, does he? No, he doesn't want you to hurt yourself. He doesn't want your kids hurt. He doesn't want your spouse hurt. He doesn't want you hurt. He doesn't want society to fall apart. And part of, listen, the building block of society is the home. It's the home. So God's model is working for your health and and your good. God certainly did not condone polygamy. I, I think that's something we can all agree on. God certainly did not condone the subjugation of women in Genesis chapter number three. So as I'm, I'm really looking at the big picture this morning, I'm like, why didn't God just walk away from us? You, you know what I'm saying? It's so broken and messed up. Why didn't God just say, okay, I'm just going to start over with another Adam and Eve. I'm going to start over with better people. Y'all, y'all are just messed up and it's just deteriorated now. I'm just going to start over with better people. Why didn't God do that? And this really is the heart of the sermon. Stay with me right here because philosophically now you're beginning to understand some of my very big arguments on the subject of women equality. Why didn't God walk away from us in our brokenness? Because there's a principle in play I see throughout the entire Bible and it's this principle. God meets us where we are. Now, I want to just give you my principle for a minute. God comes to us and he meets us where we are. Meaning this, God comes to us in our brokenness. He finds us in our broken lives and he calls to us, come and know me. Come and follow me. This is the message of the news. Come and see. Come and know me. Come and follow me. He calls us to a relationship with himself through his son. Let me show you how powerful this is. We just studied through the book of Romans this summer. Romans chapter 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. I want you to notice this statement. While we were enemies, God comes to us where we are. God didn't say to you, look, look, Sir McMurdo, get your life all straightened out, man. You're a mess. And when you get it straightened out, 
Then come down to the church, and the church will accept you, and I'll receive you, and I'll build a relationship with you. But you're a mess, quite frankly. Get yourself all straightened out, and then I'll come and meet with you. The Scripture never says that. The Scripture says, while you were an enemy of God, while I was God's enemy, while we were unclean, while we were ungodly, He came to us where we were. Now, this is one of the awesome teachings of the New Testament. So get a little little fired up about this. God meets us where we are, and through Christ, we experience forgiveness and transformation. Through that relationship with Christ, we have an open door to know God and to be reconciled to God. And through that relationship now that He's established with us, He puts the Holy Spirit inside our hearts. He gives us the Word of God. And He says, now follow me, and I'm going to transform you. I'm going to renew your mind. I'm going I'm to change your thinking back to correct thinking. One man, one woman, a lifetime commitment, equal before God. Get on me. I'm going to transform the way you think. I'm going to transform the way you talk. And listen, it's a process. I didn't get changed just like that the day I got saved. It's Salvation happens like that, but the transformation is going to take years for us, okay? It's a, it's, it's a process. The Bible, the theological word is sanctification. It takes time for things to change in your life. Let me reinforce it again. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Watch what Paul wrote. And you who once were alienated. To be alienated is alien, separated, different, uh, a barrier between you and God. You were once alienated and hostile in mind. Listen, when you watch the news and you see people just raging against everything, raging against authority, raging against marriage, raging against the Ten Commandments, raging against God, there it is. Romans chapter 1 talks about it. Listen, sin puts our minds and our beings at enmity with God. And we just, want to, we just want to kick and fight against everything God wants to do. Sometimes that rage comes up in you and you don't even know why it's there. It's that old sinful nature just wanting to rage against the man. You know, that's all it is. And, and what the Bible says is, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. You know what reconciliation is, right? That's... Husband and wife are fighting and we get in the same room together and we reconcile our differences. It's children and parents are at odds and we reconcile. It's co-workers and brothers and sisters at our odds. And we get to sit down across the table with a barbecue sandwich as we did this week. And we get to just talk it out. And we get to try to come closer together and try to reconcile our differences. Listen. The Bible says that we were aliens and we were hostile towards God. And you know what he did? You didn't go find God. He sent his son Christ to come and find you. That's the point. And say, let's sit down and let me reconcile you. You're you're aliens from God. You don't have a relationship with God. But through me, I can get you back into a proper relationship with God. This is the message of the gospel. This is what the book of Romans is about. So let me just sum it up, this, this point to you. God doesn't demand holiness before he'll engage us. He engages us in order to make us holy. If you can remember this, 
Because every once in a while, you're going to think, well, if I can just get my life straightened out, then I can reestablish my relationship with God. I haven't prayed in a while. I haven't been in the Word in a while. I've been distant from God. If I just get my life right, then I'll, then I'll re-engage with God. That's backwards. Re-engage with God. He'll help you get your life right. Matter of fact, you can't get it right on your own. That's the whole point. He engages us not because we are holy. He engages us in order to make us holy. Not only does he come and meet us where we are in our brokenness. Listen, he called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He dealt with Jacob. He dealt with David. He dealt with Solomon in their brokenness. That's what I want you to see. Not only does he meet us where we are, but God works with what we've got. Whatever conditions we have on the ground, that's where God will start working. In other words, he won't just erase it and start over. He'll start from where we are, and he'll begin to work through the situation until we get to where he wants us to be. God doesn't quit loving us when we make bad choices. Many of us here in this room have made choices which God completely disapproves of. And yet, he still continues to work in our lives. God works with the situation we presently have. I mean, just think about your situation. Just plug it in right here. What situation do you presently have? Uh, Employed, unemployed, married, single, divorced, looking, available. Uh, I mean, just whatever situation you've got, God comes to you. And he says, okay, let's start from where you are. What do you have? Okay, let's deal. Let's deal with what you have. God has been patiently dealing with broken marriages and despotic governments and pagan societies for 6,000 years. Your situation is nothing new to him. He's been dealing with brokenness for thousands of years. He's an expert at fixing brokenness. Now, now listen to what I'm trying to say to you. Until the work of Christ can transform a society, we do not see God overthrowing society and bringing in a new society. Instead, we see God meeting people where they are and working with the present situation and moving them forward from there. Now, this explains a lot. Now, think about what I'm asking you. Why are there not passages railing against polygamy because God's meeting people where they are in their polygamy he's meeting them where they are in a broken world he's meeting them where they are in a messed up society and he's saying I'm going to work with you and I'm going to develop now what I want as an outcome for example let me see if I can illustrate it for you if you know your old testament some of this will be very clear God gave clear direction from Mount Sinai Children of Israel have come out of Egypt from Mount Sinai. They get the law. God says to Moses and Israel, I want you to go to Kadesh Barnea, just up the street, and then I want you to just burst through the border, and I want you to go on the conquest of the land of Canaan. I want you to go invade the promised land and take it. It's your birthright. Now, if you know the story, they went to Kadesh Barnea, and they got scared. They sent the spies, and ten were bad, and two were good. You know that whole kid song. And, and because they were scared to go into the promised land, They wandered for 40 years on the Sinai Peninsula. God, here's what I want you to hear. Even though they made the worst possible choice for the future of Israel and for their families, God did not abandon them. God met them where they were in the desert. God worked with what they had. 
He kept feeding them. He kept clothing them. He kept protecting them. His presence never left them. A pillar, a shade of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he never abandoned his people. God gave very clear instruction to Joshua as they crossed over the Jordan River to invade the promised land 40 years later. God gave very clear instruction to Joshua on the conquest, on the battle plan. Joshua did not follow God's instructions. So did God say, okay, I'm done with you, never mind. I'll find a better nation. No, God worked with them anyway. Wasn't best, caused a lot of heartache, caused a lot of problems. But God worked with them where they were and with what they had to work with. The story of the Old Testament is this. Israel had God. Israel did not want them to have a monarchy. He did not want them to have a king. He said, I've set up a priesthood. We're going to be a theocracy, if you would, not a democracy or not a monarchy. And so they went along just for a little bit, and finally they said, we don't like that. All the other nations have a king. We feel like we're not, you know, I mean, everybody has a king. Why don't we have a king? We want a king. And so they demanded a king, and so they went and anointed one of their own people as king, Saul. Turned out to be a big old problem. Uh, 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 But even though God didn't want them to have a king, do you know what God's next move was? He met them where they were, and he worked with what they had. What did they have? A monarchy. So you know what God did? Even though he didn't want them to have a king, in the big picture, he said, okay, now this is your situation, so now we've got to work with it. And so since you've got a broken situation, you've got something I didn't want you to have, I won't blow it up, but I'll work with you through this. Samuel, go down to the house of Jesse. There's a young man that I want anointed to be the next king of Israel. And God chose the next king of Israel, even though he didn't want him to have a monarchy in the big picture. God said, it's what you've got, so we'll work with it, okay? If you want a king, at least let me give you a decent one to get this thing started, okay? And so Samuel went down and anointed David, who would become King David uh, of Israel. God worked with the monarchy that they insisted they wanted. Listen, it's even better than that because God doesn't just work through prophets and pastors and churches. God can work his will in all kinds of ways and in all kinds of circumstances. What I read in the Old Testament is that God worked through pagan empires. This is the story of Daniel in the the history of Israel. God worked through the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and ultimately the Roman Empire. God worked through Joseph's wicked brothers. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good is the summation of Joseph's story. God worked through a pagan sorcerer named Balaam. You could say God worked through his talking ass. I mean, a talking donkey was God's tool to correct in the book of Judges. Listen, if God can work through that, I think he could use you and I uh, and meet us in our brokenness and figure out how to move us forward. Listen, the Bible says in the Old Testament that God worked through Nebuchadnezzar. A wicked king became God's instrument of use. We know that God worked through King Darius of the Persian Empire. We know that God worked through Augustus, uh, through uh, 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 Alexander the Great, and then ultimately through the Caesars in the in the in the Roman Empire. And I know that because ultimately a man steps on the scene that God uses to fulfill the sacrifice of his son named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate didn't even know he was a player in the story till much much later. 
It just came at him so fast one early morning, and there it was. And before he knew it, Christ was on the cross, and Pontius Pilate had played a role ultimately in your redemption and my redemption and reconciliation to God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What I want to impress upon you this morning, and it's good news to you, is that God does not abandon us because of our bad choices. I never want your children or my children to live and grow up in such an environment where we say, if you make one mistake, we're done with you. Don't come home. You're not welcome. That sends every wrong anti-biblical message. God doesn't deal with you that way. Meet you where you are. And he works with what you've got. Even when you make bad choices, he says, okay, let's see if we can fix this mess now. And let me begin to move you forward. Many, many missionaries, and I have a, a chance to travel and talk to some of these people, have to deal with the ramifications of polygamy even in this modern generation. Imagine being a missionary right now in Africa or Asia or somewhere, and uh, uh, you lead a man to Christ, and you say, well, he says, would you come talk to my family and share the gospel, and you go to his home, and he has three wives, and you lead them to Christ, and you realize he's got kids by each wife in a polygamous relationship. And now the man and his wives have all come to faith in Jesus Christ. They want to do what's right. They want to move forward. Don't answer out loud. What do you tell them? What do you tell them? You see the problem? Uh, life is not black and white and cut and dried and it, as you want it to be. It's just not that way. God's going to meet this family where they are and, and redeem them by his grace and save them. Okay. Now we've got a man with three wives and a house full of little kids. Listen, relationships are the very, very hardest thing. As I've told you before, the only thing you can do normally is just move forward from where you are. You can't go back and undo. You can't say if I had to, you can't do it over. And everybody in this room has or will make a million relational mistakes that you will not be able to undo. All you can do is love and ask God to help you move forward. You don't condone the sin that got us to this point, but... You have to work with what you have and you have to move forward. Listen, God understands. God gets it. I think we're the ones who are a little intolerant. God gets it. (laughs) If that family were in our church, how would you receive them? Here's the man and his three wives and all their kids. We checked them into children's church. How would you love them, Cornerstone? Would you demand that they undo that in order to meet your approval? Do you find in the Bible anywhere that God told Abraham to undo it? Do you find anywhere in the Bible where God said to Jacob, now listen, four is too many. I want you to cut some of those girls loose. Do you find that in the scripture anywhere? No, once you've entered into that, the only thing you can do is move forward and and, and try to have the best possible outcome. You say, well, I'm offended. Well, God's not. God gets it. You know what he figured out? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And I'm going to have to meet mankind where they are in their mess, and I'm going to have to help them move forward. So across the broken landscape of this world that we live in, God sent forth his son 
to love and to redeem sinners and to restore, this is the important part, to restore the kingdom in us. We are called to be transformed by the power of God. And here's what we're going to teach our children. We're going to teach our children that polygamy and easy divorce and absentee fathers and polyamory and misogyny and abuse, none of these are God's models for our home. None of these are God's model for our home. We're going to teach our children that God is working in our lives to transform us, to look more like Christ, and that we are flawed people making up a flawed church, but praise God, He's working with us to transform us into the image of Christ. And our transformation is restoring kingdom values to our homes and to our church and ultimately to our society. So let's deal with this very quickly. God's kingdom, uh, sorry, uh, the example of slavery. If you can understand how God dealt with polygamy, then you got a similar thing with slavery happening in the scripture. In most of the Roman Empire, slaves uh, comprised 20% in some cities and in Italy 40% of the population. Many of these slaves, we know this because the New Testament talks about it, many of these slaves became followers of Jesus Christ. They received Christ and were born again. Thus, in these New Testament churches, meeting in someone's home, most of them, there are always slaves sitting right there in those early churches. And I have to use my imagination, but just barely, because I can understand that the church assembly was the one place on planet earth where they could be free. Let's just think about this. You're a slave, but you're a believer in Christ, and you walk through those doors, and you sit down in the congregation, the assembly, to worship Jesus Christ this morning. And when you've come into the room to worship Christ, you're now in that one place on planet earth where for at least an hour and a half or two, you are free as anybody else in the room. In the assembly, they were treated with respect. In the assembly, they've come in and now they're treated as equals with everybody else worshiping around them. And they know, sitting here, just to enjoy and savor every moment of the worship. Because as soon as we walk out those doors, we walk out the doors and we shed all of our rights We have no rights as soon as we leave those doors. I'm no longer an equal. I'm no longer respected. When I walk out the doors, put my slave hat back on, and I go back into the life that I have. Now, Paul addressed this multiple times in the New Testament. Stay with me. Ephesians 6. Watch what Paul says. I'm reading this from the NIV. It's very beautifully worded. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. And with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Here's Paul's message to a slave. Slave, obey your master sincerely, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord and not people, because you know that the Lord will reward you whatever good they do, whether slave or free. Now, it's quite moving if you read the history 
to, to read how these slaves were beaten and mistreated, yet they were submissive and they suffered so that the gospel would not be hindered. They suffered so the gospel wouldn't be hindered. Actually, Paul led a runaway slave, at least one we know of, who was a runaway, on the, a, a, a fugitive. He led him to Christ. And, and after he became a, a believer, Paul discipled this man named Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. And then Paul wrote some of the books of the New Testament. And then Paul sent Onesimus with another man to deliver Colossians and Ephesians, the books in your Bible, to those two churches. And Paul told the church at Colossae, the Colossians, that they were to receive Onesimus the slave as if he, were, he is your equal. Let me just read you a piece of the verse. I'm sending him with Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Faithful and beloved brother. You treat him just like anybody else in the room. Let me ask you a philosophical question. Is slavery immoral? Is it immoral to capture another human being, put them in chains, and enslave them to do your will? Absolutely. Let me ask you another philosophical question. Why doesn't the Bible call for the abolition of slavery? Do you see the tension now? Is slavery a sin? Yeah, it's a crime against humanity. Then why didn't Paul tell the slaves, run away? As soon as you get an opening, as soon as you get an opportunity, get a toothpick, pick the lock, I mean a paper clip, pick the lock, and get out of Dodge. Why didn't Paul tell them, unionize, get a collective, and revolt against the system, revolt against society, revolt against this? Let me tell you why. Because the pagan world was not ready for abolition. The pagan world was not ready to receive the freeing of the slaves. 40% of the population of Italy was slaves. 20% in every city of a Roman Empire were slaves. If the message of Christianity had been, now that you've received Christ, run away. It's a slave-freeing religion. Jesus' first sermon, they delivered him the scroll. He said, let the captives go free. It was his first message. The world was not ready for that. So you know what Paul said? Be subject to your own masters. Not with eye service. Serve them as you would serve the Lord. Take one for the team. Why take one for the team? It's immoral. Society is not ready for the abolition of slavery. If Paul had said, I'm going to write a whole book on letting the slaves go, you know what happened to Christianity in the first century? You know what would have happened to every one of these slaves if they had organized a revolt? The same thing that happened to slaves like Spartacus. I'm not talking about Cory Booker. I'm talking about the real one who organized the revolt against Rome. You know what happened to them? They nailed them all to crosses and killed them. Do you know what would have happened to all of these believing slaves in the first century? They would have been massacred. If they had said, we're Christians now, let us go free, they would have all been killed. And Christianity would have been greatly, greatly opposed. So here's the principle. God works with what we have until enough lives are transformed that the kingdom of God can influence the culture. Dinesh D'Souza writing recently 
He said, in the end, the fact remains, the only movements that opposed slavery in principle were mobilized in the West, and they were overwhelmingly led and populated by Christians. It was the Christians that ultimately influenced the abolition of slavery. John Newton, you'll know, uh, wrote the song Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. John Newton was a slaver captain. He ran a slave ship. He eventually got saved. He went back to England and he discipled a, a man named William Wilberforce. His disciple, William Wilberforce, became a member of British Parliament and ultimately headed the campaign to end the British slave trade. William Wilberforce influenced, and finally they enacted the Slaves Abolition Act, Slavery Abolition Act of 1833. It was the man who wrote Amazing Grace and his disciple that ushered in the end of slavery in the British Empire. At the same time, the Second Great Awakening is happening here in the United States. Society is ready to end slavery. 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. Anybody know what happens next? 1860s, what happens in America? Civil War. This era, this generation in America, the second great awakening, spiritual awakening is happening in America right now. And the Americans are getting saved in thousands, and Americans are coming to Christ. White, black, brown, slave, free man, people are coming to Christ. Can you imagine what God's about to do in our culture here in America? Hearts are beginning to change, positions are beginning to change, minds are being transformed by renewing, and most Christians in America are now moved over and are heading, leading the way, pushing for the abolition of slavery in America. Some Southerners then rose up, a pocket of Southerners rose up and used the Bible to defend slavery as a practice that was actually ordained by God. Now hear what I'm saying. America's ready to let the slaves go because society's been transformed by Christianity, by the kingdom of God. And now a pocket in the south rise up of religious people and they say, no, slavery is a good thing. It's ordained of God. And they start using the scripture to say that we should keep slaves. And thus, it gave birth, it caused a split among the Baptists, and the Southern Baptist Convention was born right here as those who wanted to keep their slaves. Are you with me? Everybody tracking along? You hear what I just said? Southern Baptist was born so that they could keep their slaves, and they split from the Northern and General Baptists. Let me give you a quote. Jefferson Davis, President of the Confederate States, Slavery was established by a decree of Almighty God. Is that the way you read your Bible? It is sanctioned in the Bible. How did Jefferson Davis come to believe that slavery was sanctioned by the Scriptures? Simple. He read Paul's words. Slaves be subject to your masters as unto the Lord. And he took that as God saying this is the way it should be. No, God was just saying, this is the world you have, and I come to meet you where you are in your brokenness, and for now, you're going to have to be subject, or you're all going to get massacred. Are you with me? Jefferson Davis read that scripture very differently. He said, it's ordained of God. Uh, In the Bible, it exists in both Testaments, from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages. It has been found among people of the highest civilization and in nations of the highest proficiency of the arts. 
Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States. Furman University, it's, it's a Southern Baptist institution. Richard Furman said this, the right of holding slaves is clearly established in the Holy Scriptures by both precept and by example. Richard Furman, president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention. Let me ask you a question, guys. How does history judge slave owners now? Were they right or wrong? I mean, it's not a trick question. (laughs) They're wrong. Let me ask you another question. When the Southern Baptists used the Bible to justify slavery, were they right or wrong? It's okay. It's okay to speak against them. You are one of them. They were wrong. We were, let's say we, (laughs) our ancestors, we were wrong. And what has happened now is history has given us a clearer perspective, hasn't it? You see, to read into the scriptures that slavery should be promoted is a gross misinterpretation of scripture. And even though they knew this was wrong, even in modern history, the Southern Baptists did not issue an apology for the act of slavery until 1995. It wasn't until 1995, 130 years late, but finally, somebody said, you know, that was a gross misinterpretation of Scripture, what we did. And if you can understand how the early Christians dealt with slavery, it's useful to you in our series because the same arguments are being, that, that were used to support slavery are the same arguments that are used for the subjugation and the silencing of women. You may turn you over to Ephesians and show you, show you where it says the same thing. Book of Ephesians, right next to this other passage on slavery. It's funny how we can recognize slavery is wrong now, but we can't come to grips with our attitude towards womanhood has also been incorrect. Let me close it with this. God's kingdom is restorative. What you need to know about being born again is that being born again put you into the kingdom of God, and in the kingdom of God, we're concerned with restoring what God built in the beginning, not perpetuating the brokenness that we've been perpetuating. Does that make sense? We're not here to perpetuate the curse this morning at Cornerstone. We're here to reverse the curse whenever and wherever possible. When Jesus showed up in the book of Mark and he begins his ministry, he comes forth preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He starts preaching about the kingdom of God is at hand. Remember these, the parables were about kingdoms. His sermon was about the kingdom. He said the kingdom of God is here. I'm showing you something new. Get saved and come into the kingdom of God. We're going to restore. We're going to change. We're going to treat people golden rule. Do unto others as you'd have. All of these teachings in the Sermon of the Mount come about because of the kingdom of God. When he taught his disciples to pray. Do you remember how he taught them to pray? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for us, it's much more than a prayer that one day God's kingdom will come because God told, Jesus told them in Luke chapter number uh, 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 11, he said, listen, the kingdom of God is here, it's right now, it's within you. Luke 17, it's within you right now. They said, where is the kingdom? He said, you're in it if you're born again. It's working right 
Now, now let, me, let me sum it up like this. This is why you see so much brokenness in the Old Testament. Because until the kingdom of God comes, until Christ comes and begins to put us into the kingdom of God, lives now are being transformed to become like Christ. And until that happened, societal reforms didn't have a prayer of becoming reality. Until people could begin to be transformed, society can't be transformed. Sin had to be dealt with first and foremost, and that's how God saved us, and that's how he's transforming us to restore what we lost in the fall. And when a substantial portion of society become born-again believers, and now have entered into the kingdom of God, do you see how society is about to change now? Let a substantial number of Christians begin to spread in society, and then that society starts being influenced by the kingdom values, and then that culture is beginning to change. Let me sum it up like this. Societies are only transformed if individuals are willing to be transformed. So this morning, let's learn a lesson from the abolition of slavery. When you're reading the Bible with your children and they see the slaves on the pages of the Bible, then we're going to teach our children, you see the slaves and you see their suffering, this is, you're going to tell your kids, this was not the way God wanted it to be. But this is what sin did to humanity. And when your kids see that, you're going to say, this, this is what sin does to civilization. And men subjugated and mistreated their fellow man. And while God did not approve of that mistreatment, they suffered as heroes of the Christian faith in order to advance the kingdom of God. The other takeaway this morning is this. We learn that when culture has at last been influenced by we who are in the kingdom of God and by our kingdom values, then let the culture reform if it's ready to reform. Christianity, both in Europe and America, eventually influenced culture in the 1800s so that finally in those great awakenings, society, pagan society, unsaved society, said, let the culture reform, let the slaves go free. Do you know what happened later? They eventually said, let women be treated as equals. Let women have the right to vote. But you know who stood up and blocked the equal treatment of women? A group of religious people using the scripture. Do you see the similarities of what's happened? When society's ready to reform, then the church needs to say, praise God, we've influenced society. They're on track now. Let it reform. I want to say to you women, I'm sorry you've been mistreated probably many times along the way. Don't don't let anyone tell you that you have to pay for Eve's sins 2,000, 6,000 years later because Christ has already paid for Eve's sins. 2,000 years ago on a cross, he not only paid for Eve's sins, Christ paid for my sins and he paid for your sins and he paid for every man's sins and every woman's sins and everybody's sins. And you don't have to feel guilty about that anymore. Christ has done it for us. That's the gospel. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed this morning. Let me just lead you in a simple prayer this morning. The kingdom of God is restorative. 
Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to have control of your heart and mind to restore kingdom values into your life? I know almost all of us carry some baggage with us from culture, from from our past. But when you understand what God's design was for you, listen, change doesn't happen by accident. It happens intentionally. And I want you this morning to intentionally say to God, God, whatever wrong notions I've had, about how to treat my fellow man. God, I pray that you just put the truth on that today. Give me a heart like Christ. I want every, every uh, wonderful Cornerstone member this morning just spend a moment in prayer and, and say to God, God, thank you for the environment of openness and liberty you've created here at Cornerstone. God, work in our midst. Lord, may this be the one place on planet Earth where everyone is treated equally. If they can't be treated equally outside the house of God, then surely in here we can treat our brothers and our sisters with respect and with value as wonderful, wonderful people for which Christ died. Maybe you came into the house of God this morning. <clears throat> Not sure what you expected to hear, but you heard a little bit about God didn't deal with the symptoms of society. Instead, he dealt with the very fact of sin. He went right to the heart of the matter. And if you're wondering, why didn't God intervene? Why didn't God intervene? In such a broken world, he did. He absolutely did. He sent his son. That was his intervention. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. They would come to this planet, live a perfect life as a man, and die on the cross as a sinner's substitute, pay for the price of our redemption, be buried and rise again to be our living Savior. That is the gospel. If you want Christ as your Savior, then you have to make a definitive act this morning and say, I want you, Jesus, to be the Lord and Savior of my life. You have to turn from your self-will and your sin and turn to Christ, and he will save you. He said in Romans 10, For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never done that, I want to pray with you right now to receive Christ. If you need to be a member of the church or anything else, you can just slip out of your seat in these moments and come and talk with Pastor David or Miss Leah here. They know how to help you. For those who've never received Christ, I want you to pray with me right now. Pray like this. Dear God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. Lord, I need a Savior. In Jesus, I know you are the Savior of the world. You're the Son of God. You're what I need. And this morning, I acknowledge to you, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. And I need you, Jesus, to be the Lord of my life. Please forgive me of my sins. Wash me. Cleanse me. Jesus, I receive you into my heart and into my life as my Lord and Savior. Lord, from this moment and forevermore, I'm asking you to be the king of my life. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that that renewing, Lord, that that would be a reality in my own life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together.